Hello, my name is Geraldine Goescolar. I'm adjunct associate professor of law at the National University of Singapore. Today, I will speak about the sources of international space law. Robert Frost wrote, something there is that doesn't love a wall. But he acknowledged, good fences make good neighbors. More so, I would venture, when spaces are shared and walls must be intangible. Peaceful access to outer space, a global common shared by humanity, is possible only within a shared framework of rules. This framework, created and negotiated and applied by the actors and stakeholders involved, is international space law. How is international space law formed, and where can its main rules and principles be found? Today, I will discuss the sources of international space law. First, the recognized formal sources, and secondly, the non-traditional informal sources. International space law is a body of international law. Therefore, it is only natural that the formal sources of international law provide a normative framework for international space law as well. A few words, therefore, on the sources of international law are warranted. The positivist theory of international law tends to attach particular status to the sources of international law enumerated in Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice. These are, first, international conventions, secondly, international custom as evidence of a general practice accepted as law, thirdly, general principles of law, and lastly, judicial decisions and the teachings of the most highly qualified publicists as subsidiary means. On its face, Article 38 as it stands merely directs one particular international tribunal as to what rules it should apply. However, many distinguished international authorities refer to it as the authoritative enumeration of sources in international law. This list holds true also for international space law. For example, international space law has rules and principles codified in treaties. Presumably, the sources indicated in Article 38 would apply equally also to interstate disputes involving the use of outer space. However, the list of sources as itemized in Article 38 of the Statute of the ICJ does not wholly reflect the sources of international space law, as has been broadly understood and applied. A list of complete sources of international space law may come closer to that proposed by the International Law Commission in 1989, which added to those identified in Article 38 the binding decisions of international organizations, as well as the judgments of international courts and tribunals. The recognition of these additional sources of law is significant since there is now widespread acceptance of the fact that states are no longer the only subjects of international law. The international community today counts among its members international intergovernmental organizations and perhaps more circumspectly, non-state actors such as non-governmental organizations, multinational corporations and individuals. International law bestows certain rights and imposes certain obligations on all these categories of actors. This is particularly relevant given the plethora of actors and stakeholders involved in state, uh, space activities. Aside from the formal recognized sources of international space law, which consist of legally binding obligations, there is also informal international space law. The latter, also known as soft law, is not binding per se, but has a significant role in the rules relating to international space law. Aside from establishing informal standards and codes of conduct, such informal rules also signify the possible codification of customary international law. I will turn first to the four formal sources of international law recognized in Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice, treaties and conventions, international custom, general principles of law, and judicial decisions and teachings of publicists. 
International conventions and treaties most clearly embody the principle of consent and free will among states and between states and international organizations. A treaty is intended to stipulate in writing the binding international rights and obligations between its parties. A unique feature of international space law is the number of basic rules and principles enshrined in multilateral treaties. The United Nations played a decisive role in elucidating these rules and principles. Specifically, five important space law treaties were concluded under the auspices of the United Nations. These are the 1967 Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies, also known as the Outer Space Treaty, the 1968 Agreement on the Rescue of Astronauts, the Return of Astronauts, and the Return of Objects Launched into Outer Space, or the Rescue Agreement, the 1972 Convention on International Liability for Damage Caused by Space Objects, or the Liability Convention, the 1976 Convention on the Registration of Objects Launched into Outer Space, or the Registration Convention, and the 1979 Agreement Governing the Activities of States on the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies, or the Moon Agreement. Various other multilateral treaties and international conventions, such as the Constitution and Convention of the International Telecommunications Union, also contribute to the corpus of international space treaty law. Regardless, the five UN conventions constitute the core of this body of law and codify some of the most widely accepted rules and principles of international space law. Each of them will be discussed briefly here in chronological order. The Outer Space Treaty was adopted by the UN General Assembly on the 19th of December 1966 and opened for signature on the 27th of January 1967 and entered into force on the 10th of October 1967, 10 years and one week after the launch of the world's first artificial satellite. At the time of its entry into force, it had been signed by 93 states and ratified by an additional 16, a total that was close to 90% of the UN membership at the time. The Outer Space Treaty is regarded as the foundational lawmaking framework treaty of international space law. Its provisions are considered to be rules of customary international law. It codifies many of the basic legal rules applicable to activities in outer space, including the freedom of the exploration and use of outer space, which should be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries, the principle that outer space is the province of all mankind and is not subject to appropriation, the principle that all activities in outer space must be conducted in accordance with international law, including the Charter of the UN. The principle that the moon and other celestial bodies shall be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. The principle that states' parties bear international responsibility for national activities in outer space. The principle that a launching state of a safe space object is internationally liable for damage caused by that object. And the principle of due regard to the corresponding interests of other state parties in the conduct of space activities. One year after the Outer Space Treaty, the Rescue Agreement was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly and signed by 43 states on the 22nd of April 1968. It entered into force on the 3rd of December of the same year. Concluded amidst the spectre of the Cold War, it aimed to address urgent concerns of the only two spacefaring nations at the time, the United States and the Soviet Union, relating to the possible mistreatment or detainment of astronauts. Catastrophic and Fatal accidents occurring in both the American and Soviet space program gave further impetus to the conclusion of the rescue agreement so as to ensure the safety of astronauts. Prompted by sentiments of humanity, the rescue agreement focuses on the provision of assistance and the rescue and safe return of astronauts as well as the return of space objects. 
The Liability Convention was the next of the space law treaties to follow. It recognizes the hazardous nature of space activities and the need for effective international rules for the equitable compensation to victims of any damage caused by space activities. Negotiations on the Liability Convention were started in parallel to those that resulted in a rescue agreement, the former being of greater interest to the states not yet active in space activities, while the two space active states at the time considered the latter more urgent. The UN General Assembly adopted the Liability Convention on the 29th of November 1971, and the convention was opened for signature on 29th of March 1972 and entered into force on the 1st of September of the same year. The convention provides for absolute liability for damage caused by a space object on the surface of the Earth or to aircraft in flight, and for fault-based liability for damage caused by a space object elsewhere than on the surface of the Earth. Joint and several liability for damage caused by a space object jointly launched by states parties is envisioned. The Liability Convention also provides for a claims procedure where damage is caused by a space object, as well as appropriate and rapid assistance to states suffering damage from space objects where there is a large-scale danger to human life or serious interference with the living conditions of the population. The 1975 Registration Convention was adopted without vote by the UN General Assembly on the 12th of November 1974. It opened for signature on the 14th of January 1975 and entered into force on the 15th of September 1976. The Convention's main contribution, as its name suggests, is the obligation to register space objects. Registration of space objects has two purposes. First, to ensure transparency and build confidence among members of the international community in relation to space activities and secondly, to enable the identification of space objects. This was so as to be able to trace the state with jurisdiction and control over that object, as well as to found state responsibility and liability in the case of damage. The 1979 Moon Agreement has proved to be the most controversial UN treaty on space law to date. While Destination Moon has been the source of inspiration in literature and motivation in space science, the aversion of states to the Moon Agreement has brought space treaty making in the UN to a skidding halt. The Moon Agreement was, after long negotiations, unanimously adopted by the UN General Assembly on the 5th of December 1979. It opened for signature on the 18th of December 1979. However, to date, there have only been 16 ratifications and four signatures to the Moon Agreement, most of which from states that do not possess either present or nascent technology to enable access to the Moon. The Moon Agreement aimed to prevent the Moon from becoming an area of international conflict. It also considered the benefits that may be derived from the exploitation of the natural resources of the Moon and other celestial bodies. It provides that the exploration and use of the moon shall be the province of all mankind and shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries. Due regard is to be paid to the interests of present and future generations, as well as the promotion of progress and development. Moreover, the moon and its natural resources are the common heritage of mankind and not subject to national appropriation. Aside from these five treaties concluded under the framework of the United Nations, the space sector has seen a multitude of international, regional and bilateral treaties. These include international regional conventions, creating international intergovernmental space-related organizations, agreements concluded for specific space projects, bilateral agreements relating to space activities, and other international, regional and bilateral treaty frameworks in fields that are related to space activities. International and regional conventions establishing international intergovernmental organizations create international law binding on member states. 
Examples of conventions that fall within this category include the conventions that established the International Telecommunications Satellite Organization, Intelsat, the International System and Organization of Space Communications, Intersputnik, the European Space Agency, ESA, and the Arab Corporation for Space Communications, Arabsat. International cooperation on space projects has also led to international agreements being concluded to provide the necessary legal and institutional frameworks. The International Space Station, or the ISS, for example, is the single largest and most ambitious project ever undertaken in outer space. The 1998 ISS Intergovernmental Agreement concerning its development, construction and operation brought 15 major space active states together in partnership. Now, there are countless bilateral agreements relating to space activities, testament to the enduring ideals of international cooperation in outer space, as well as the complexity of space activities. These agreements span the entire spectrum of space activities, including agreements on launch services, ground stations, technology transfer, and human spaceflight. Finally, there are also various international, regional, or bilateral treaty frameworks in fields that are not specific to space activities, but which nonetheless impact upon activities in outer space. These frameworks include those relating to international commerce and trade, intellectual property, telecommunications coordination, and arms control and disarmament. It is noteworthy that many of these treaties, concluded outside of the framework of the United Nations, have nevertheless incorporated certain international laws and rules encapsulated in the UN space treaties. An example is the link made in the ISS Intergovernmental Agreement between Registration and Jurisdiction, which echoes Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty and the Registration Convention. These treaties have incorporated innovations in treaty law in response to the particular demands of the space sector. The ESA Convention and the ISS Intergovernmental Agreement, for example, included accompanying agreements that allowed for the provisional application of the main treaty prior to its entry in force. This enabled international treaty law to adapt to the needs of the space industry. In the case of the ISS, the agreement for the provisional application of the Intergovernmental Agreement allowed the development and construction of the station to proceed prior to its entry into force. Another innovation is the recognition of an international intergovernmental organization as a subject of international law on the same level as states. In this regard, the ISS Intergovernmental Agreement recognizes the European Space Agency as a partner in collaboration with Canada, Japan, the Russian Federation and the United States of America, despite the fact that it was acting on behalf of 11 European states. International custom, according to Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice, is evidence of a general practice accepted as law. Customary international law is also rooted in consent. As defined by the ICJ in the North Sea Continental Shelf Judgment, customary international law is comprised of widespread and consistent state practice and the psychological element of opinio jure sive necessitatis the latter signifying a view that is something is required by considerations of law and of or of necessity. The basis of international custom is that states regulate their relations according to certain practices that eventually become the established method of doing things, such that departures from such practices are no longer legally acceptable without the consent of other states concerned. The particular significance of a rule of customary international law is that it creates obligations for all states. The greatest difficulty relating to customary international law, however, is proof as to its development. Proof of two elements is necessary, state practice and opinion jurors. State practice may be gleaned from several sources, including participation in treaty negotiations, the travaux préparatoires of treaties, 
accident international organizations, pleadings of states before international courts and tribunals, and governments and diplomatic statements, as well as national legislation and the decisions of national courts. In order to provide evidence of custom, state practice must be general, although, as the International Court of Justice opined in the North Sea Continental Shelf cases, there is no requirement that a specified period of time must pass. Opinion juris, the second criterion for the formation of a customary international law, is shown by proving that a state conducted itself in a certain manner because it believes that the law so requires. In considering whether a rule of customary international law exists, the International Court of Justice has considered statements made by representatives of states, including expressions of belief regarding acts at international meetings, resolutions at the General Assembly, uh, as well as the conclusion of treaties. The consensual nature of international custom is highlighted by the rule that a persistent objector with special interests may make it clear from the outset that it refuses consent to the growth of that rule. In that case, the persistently objecting state may be exempted from the application of the newly formed rule. The persistent objector rule should, however, be considered in light of the operation of acquiescence. Where a state fails to protest against the practice of other states over time, the principle of acquiescence operates to prevent it from subsequently protesting against the fact that the practice is allowed as a matter of international law. The example given in relation to the general principle of acquiescence is one derived from space activities. The launch of Sputnik 1 and the lack of objection by other states to the infringement of sovereignty usque ad curlum. The implementation of international obligations within its domestic law is an internal matter for each state. However, a state may not plead the defects of its domestic legal system as an excuse to avoid its international obligations. It is therefore in the interest of space active states to enact domestic legislation to ensure that activities within its jurisdiction comply with its international obligations. Such domestic space legislation is another method by which state practice, in particular the states active in outer space and thus with special interest in the area, can be ascertained. Domestic legislation primarily addresses the implementation of states' international obligations through the establishment of implementing agencies and relevant institutions, the adoptions of the rules of international space law into the domestic legal system, and the implementation mechanisms of such regulations. The debates in the UN, and in particular the proceedings of the Committee on the Peaceful Users of Outer Space and its subcommittees, are frequently quoted as evidence of state practice in opinion juris. Certainly, state practice in the form of voting and abstentions in these fora, as well as agreement in the form of consensus, provide a rich source of evidence for the development of rules of customary international law. Resolutions of the UN General Assembly, therefore, may be considered under the two heads in the theory of sources as evidence of state practice in the formation of custom and as informal international lawmaking. Customary international space law is a peculiar species, more so than practically any other area of the law. And state practice is dominated by a select group of space active states. It is true that the practice of states whose interests are the most affected is particularly relevant in considering whether a norm of customary international law has crystallized. However, given the small number of space active states, the question that arises is whether acquiescence on the part of states that are not space active is sufficient evidence of their consent to the norm in question. Certain rules enunciated in the Outer Space Treaty are considered unquestionably to have been elevated to norms of customary international law. Others, for example, the need for prior consent of states in conducting Earth observation activities, have been more controversial. The third recognized source of international law is that arising from general principles of law. 
It is worth mentioning in the context of international space law that the principles of good faith and Pacta Sunt Savanda foundations on which the edifice of international cooperation, transparency and confidence building measures in outer space are raised. These principles have proved their undeniable importance in the development of international space law, keeping in mind the fact that space active states are still in a minority, whereas their activities may impact all states in the international community. Another essential principle of international law is the concept of equity. In view of the emphasis laid on the benefit and interests of all countries by the founding texts of international space treaty law, the concept of equity has found expression in other general principles applicable to space activities. These include the consideration of outer space as the province of mankind, the categorization of the moon and other celestial bodies as the common heritage of mankind, the freedom of access to and the use of outer space, and the due regard that is to be given to the activities of other states. The judicial decisions and teachings of publicists are expressly considered subsidiary means for the determination of rules of law. International space law has not yet seen a case brought publicly before an international tribunal, and uh, it is therefore unknown whether the writings of jurists and other highly qualified publicists in the field will carry any substantial weight in the tribunal's deliberations. It is clear, however, that the writings and teachings of highly qualified publicists have informed the development of international space law in other fora, such as through the work of the two subcommittees of the, of the Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space, COPIWOS, um, and the work of the UN General Assembly. Today, there is no question that international legal personality extends beyond states and can be enjoyed by non-state actors as well. Although states remain the primary and predominant actors in space law, burgeoning activity by international intergovernmental organizations, non-governmental organizations, and multinational corporations have impacted the formation of international law. However, the state has remained a supervising authority and the only entity with legal personality and full lawmaking capacity. Nowhere is the influence of international intergovernmental organizations more obvious than in the space sector. Unsurprising given the complexity of space activities, international organizations have proliferated and have had a profound impact on the development of space law. The acts and decisions of these international organizations, such as the European Space Agency, may bind member states or even amend or interpret treaty obligations. The term use cogens refers to peremptory norms that represent fundamental values from which no derogation is permitted. Do use cogent norms apply in outer space? Here, it is striking that Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty provides that international law, including the Charter of the UN, applies to activities in outer space. Now, this means that the use cogent norms of the prohibition on aggression, genocide, and racial discrimination apply equally to activities in outer space. Obligations erga omnis refer to the class of obligations owed by a state to the international community of states as a whole. It allows any state other than an injured state to invoke the responsibility of the state that committed the breach. It is much, in its much quoted obiter dictum in the Barcelona Traction case, the International Court of Justice held that some obligations by their very nature are the concern of all states. Therefore, all states have a legal interest in the protection of these obligations erga omnis. More so than any other environment, the particular physical nature of outer space means that any activity undertaken in it has potentially far-reaching effects for each and every state in the international community. This makes for a compelling argument that obligation to preserve and protect both the space and Earth environments when undertaking space activities can be considered to be an obligation owed to the entire international community. 
The corollary to this argument is, of course, whether the obligation to mitigate and remediate the orbital debris issue is also an obligation owed erga omnis. The traditional doctrine of sources, as listed in Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice, has been criticized for its inability to take into account the panoply of quasi-legislative activity in international law that states must face today. Additionally, the evolution of increasingly specialized areas of international law, to which it is suggested that different rules apply than would in general international law, has cast doubt on the adequacy of the traditional concept of sources. Now, cue the entry of informal international law, or soft law. This generic term, which has been defined as normative provisions contained in non-binding texts, comprises a range of instruments of great diversity. Since its inception, space activities have been regulated by quasi-legal, informal methods of lawmaking. This informal soft law has often produced effective results that are flexible, quick to respond to technical, political and economic developments, and responsive to the needs of both state and non-state actors. Conversely, its non-binding nature means that its effectiveness depends upon independent compliance by actors rather than enforcement mechanisms. Moreover, differences in interpretation and implementation may lead to a lack of consistency of practice. However, these informal methods of regulation, which tend to be resorted to by technical experts and entities actively involved in the routine business of space activities, create an operational framework for the practical implementation of more formal international laws and regulations. Informal methods of international lawmaking that arguably generate soft international space law include UN General Assembly resolutions, policies, guidelines and codes of conduct, memoranda of understanding and other non-binding instruments and technical standards. It is undeniable, however, that informal rules constitute a versatile pre-dois program which is expedient not only as a confidence-building measure but also in providing both simpler final finalization procedures and operating methods that allow the framework to be more rapidly put in place and by a greater diversity of actors than merely states. Certain foundational principles of various frameworks have also contributed to the formation of customary international law. However, informal international lawmaking may fall prey to difficulties in enforcement given their non-binding nature. Their interpretation by the parties concerned may also differ, leading to a mismatch in expectations and compliance. Moreover, the negotiation process through consensus may prove painstaking and inefficient and may frustrate any attempt to negotiate an actual treaty framework. The cradle-to-adoption timeframe of a substantive UN General Assembly resolution on activities in outer space ranges between 6 and 20 years. Another valid concern in relation to discrete groups of entities creating informal soft law is the possibility that it may result in the fragmentation of international space law. While the pool of space-active entities remains small, this concern is theoretical. However, as more states and non-state actors emerge in the space sector, the harmonization of laws and processes, whether formal or informal, increasingly becomes urgent. There exists a range of informal regulatory mechanisms that either declare, interpret, apply or enforce the rules of international space law that are established by treaty and other sources of international law. Now, these can be broadly divided into four categories, UN General Assembly resolutions, policies, guidelines and codes of conduct, memorandum of understanding and other non-binding agreements, and technical standards. These categories, ordered according to their top-down application, span the whole spectrum from broad-brush principles through to forms of direct command and control regulation. 
Recently, there is greater cognizance of the fact that traditional sources of international law are of limited effect, particularly in the rapidly evolving, high-stakes technical operations of space activities on a day-to-day -day basis. This has resulted in numerous initiators of a more flexible nature, which I will discuss in turn. Article 26 of the UN Charter provides that resolutions of the UN General Assembly are merely recommendatory and have no binding effect on member states of the UN. Such decisions cannot, therefore, be considered an independent source of international law. However, certain resolutions of normative character may be of great significance. Opinion is split as to whether such UN General Assembly resolutions are normative frameworks constituting a novel source of international space law, or whether they are simply evidence of state practice and the emergence of an opinion juris in relation to the crystallization of a new rule of customary international law. The reality is that some of these UN General Assembly resolutions are looked to as indications of some form of international law, even if their binding character is dubious. Seven UN General Assembly resolutions are generally discussed in this context. They are the 1982 principles governing the use of states of artificial Earth satellites for international direct television broadcasting, the 1986 principles relating to the remote sensing of the Earth from outer space, the 1992 principles relevant to the use of nuclear power sources in outer space, the 1996 Declaration on International Cooperation in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space for the Benefit and in the Interest of All States, the 2004 Resolution on the Application of the Concept of the Launching State, the 2007 Resolution on Recommendations on Enhancing the Practice of States and International Intergovernmental Organizations in Registering Space Objects, and the 2013 Resolution on Recommendations on National Legislation Relevant to the Peaceful Exploration and Use of Outer Space. The first of these, the Direct Broadcasting Principles, was the only resolution of the seven to be adopted by a majority vote at the UN General Assembly. Significantly, the minority objectors and states abstaining consisted of the group of states with actual or nascent satellite broadcasting capacity, and whose interests were therefore most affected by the principles. Tensions led to the impossibility of consensus in the COPUO's legal subcommittee, and when the principles were presented by a group of non-aligned states to the General Assembly, the vote was riven along political lines. As a result, there is considerable support for the argument that the direct broadcasting principles have less normative legal authority than the other space-related UN General Assembly resolutions. Now, leaving the direct broadcasting principles aside, there has been some support for the stance that the history of compliance with the other six resolutions has rapidly elevated each at least into the category of soft law and, as Lyle and Larson write, that as time goes on, their softness has dissipated. Moreover, consistent state practice in compliance with, with certain fundamental principles enunciated in these resolutions, particularly that of the states whose interests are the most affected, lead to the safe conclusion that some of these principles have achieved the uh, status of customary international law. Various informal working arrangements in the space sector have also resulted in non-binding policies, guidelines and codes of conduct. Written by technical experts and supported by major agencies of space-active states, these informal frameworks set standards for sustainability and interoperability on transboundary and international issues. Coordination and cooperation within the space science community was the first area in which such informal arrangements were established. The International Council for Science established the Committee on Space Research, or COSPAR, in 1958, the year after the launch of Sputnik 1. Representatives of national and international scientific institutions serve on COSPAR's council. 
COSPAR is the world's foremost forum for the presentation of major advances in space research and also provides expert advice to the United Nations and other international bodies. Other such fora include the International Astronautical Federation, the International Institute of Space Law, and the International Academy of Astronautics. Technical interoperability and coordination are two areas where informal committees play an important role. For example, in 2000, the Interagency Operations Advisory Group was formed, comprising the European Space Agency, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration or NASA of the United States, and the space agencies of France, Germany, Italy, and Japan. It works to coordinate policy, procedure, and interfaces relating to space communications. Other examples include the Consultative Committee for Space Data Systems, established to increase interoperability between agencies, and the Space Frequency Coordination Group, which brought 26 space agencies together in an informal forum to discuss matters relating to the use and management of radio frequencies in outer space. These groups produce non-binding resolutions and recommendations that depend entirely upon the national space agencies for their implementation. The protection of the outer space environment is an area that is recently receiving increased attention. The Interagency Space Debris Coordination Committee, which was formed in 1981, works on the mitigation and remedy of orbital debris in outer space. Its efforts led to the release in 2002 of guidelines on the mitigation of orbital debris, which were approved by the United Nations General Assembly in 2007. However, it remains a non-binding instrument dependent on the will of space agencies for implementation. Forms of delegated legislation, which provide a practical means by which states and non-state actors implement their international obligations, must also be considered. These operating and technical standards, codes of conduct and administrative decisions interpret the content of a state's international obligations in fields where the acts of one actor may potentially have great impact on the activities of other actors. They also generally include the input of technical experts in the field, as well as the coordinated participation of a large swath of the international community. The draft International Code of Conduct for Outer Space Activities proposed by the European Union is one such example. The draft Code of Conduct resulted from three rounds of multilateral consultations, in which some 95 UN member states participated. The consensus report produced was endorsed by the UN General Assembly. Despite some concerns that the consultative process was not sufficiently inclusive, such initiatives by international organizations may serve as important evidence of a coalescing norm of customary international law. A development particularly pertinent in the discussion of international space law is the practice among states and other entities to enter into non-binding memoranda of understanding, or MOUs. Now, these instruments reduce the parties' intentions into writing without binding them to any legally enforceable obligations. The construction and use of the International Space Station, as well as the operation of global mobile personal communications by satellites at the International Communications Union, have been choreographed through MOUs between cooperating parties. The importance of these MOUs in the formation of international space law is illustrated by the debate among parties as to the extent to which these MOUs are actually binding. Legal and policy frameworks aside, activities in outer space mainly involve project management, engineering and scientific work. Managers, engineers, scientists and technicians are involved in the design, building, qualification, launch and operations of the various components of spaceflight. Technical and quality standards prescribe a range of criteria and specifications that allow target setting to a specificity that is unusual for an international treaty or custom. 
These standards, however, provide a source of benchmarks which, when applied across entire national and regional industries, may evolve to set various minimum international thresholds and process standards. A good example is the European Coordination for Space Standardization, or ECSS, an initiative that aims to develop a single set of user-friendly, practical and coherent standards for use on all European space activities. Participants include the European Space Agency and its participating member agencies, corporations in industry and non-governmental organizations as associates. The ECSS standards are coordinated by the European Space Agency's Research and Technology Centre, ESTEC and comprises four branches, project management, engineering, product assurance, and space sustainability. The ECSS standards aim for continuous improvement, systematically integrating experience from past projects and other appropriate sources to correct inadequacies in the standards in an effort to promote even greater harmonization of industry standards. The ECSS has partnered with the European Committee for Standardization and the European Association of Aerospace Industries in this regard. The rapid advances in space technology and the burgeoning growth of the space sector show the insufficiencies of the traditional means of international lawmaking. Innovative regulatory frameworks, both in binding and non-binding format, have evolved organically in response to the changing patterns of human activity in outer space. In the space arena, the legal framework has had to react to a diversity of actors, a plurality of technical fields, and a unique environment medium that is at once specialized and universal. The integrated management of space activities have necessitated the harmonization of the applicable regulatory frameworks. Entities involved in outer space activities have recognized that efforts to address each element of the spaceflight sector separately may not be an effective means of regulation. This has led to strategies for integrated space management, which takes into account the effects of space activities as a whole and the entire industrial, scientific and commercial life cycles of space missions in developing and implementing controls. The ECSS standards constitute one such example. Another good example relates to proposals for a unified space traffic management and space situational awareness system. The principles and rules that govern activities in outer space are declared or reflected in myriad instruments at the global, regional and national levels. Building on the Outer Space Treaty, which enunciated the basic principles of general application, a corpus of binding and non-binding regulatory arrangements has developed in re direct response to the growing needs of the spaceflight industry. The existing theory of sources in international law is quickly becoming inadequate to address the variety of regulatory techniques employed in the space sector. While momentum is gathering towards more informal lawmaking processes, these methods are, and should continue to be, the focus of diagnostic international scrutiny. The developments of the last 60 years have shown that the regulation of outer space activities will not be effective if attempted through the mere adoption of broad framework agreements. These agreements need specific regulations to be properly elaborated for implementation. Effective means and instruments must be put in place to improve compliance without losing sight of the fundamental principles of international space law. Thank you.